All right, guys, uh, I'm going to be reading from uh, Zechariah for us. Uh, there's uh, four passages, so um, I'm going to start in chapter one. Uh, in the eighth month, the second year of Darius, the the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Ido. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But, the wor- but they would not listen to or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented and said... The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to to do. Then heading to chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is it not the man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes and he stood before the angel. The angel said to who was standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave the the charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I'll give you a place among these standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua, and you will associate seated before you, who are men symbolic of these things, come. I am going to bring you my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of you, Joshua. These are seven eyes on that, on the stone. I will engrave an inscription on it says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of the land in a single day. In the day, in the day each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Then heading to chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Zion, your daughter Jerusalem. See, your kingdom comes to you, righteous and victorious, Lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. 
He will proclaim the peace of the nations. He will extend from the sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from, from the waterless pit. And then turning the page, reading from Hebrews. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended to, into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, or just as we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's, God's throne with grace, with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, good evening, everyone, and uh, I want to say good day as well. My name's Craig, and uh, I'm one of the ministers here in the parish of Churchill. And uh, as Justin said, just come up from uh, the Garrison Church down the road. As I do always, I bring greetings from uh, your brothers and sisters down at the Garrison Church. And uh, it is always a joy and a pleasure to be here with us at 6 p.m., in this space and this time. Those uh, who have been coming for a while, we've been reading a lot of prophets recently. Um, we're exploring the 12 minor prophets, and um, this is number 11. This is number 11. We're almost there. And uh, so we're going to be exploring this book, Zechariah, tonight and opening it up. One of the things you notice, uh, as Justin has already alluded to, the book of Zechariah is a pretty up-and-down, topsy-turvy prophecy. Um, it's full of odd visions and poetic images. And there's a constant questioning from the prophet himself as you read this text of what his visions all mean. And so he keeps saying, what does this represent? And what's that all about? He often asks. Uh, on first reading, I felt quite a chaotic tone to these 14 chapters. But there is a thread that runs through the whole prophecy. And that thread is the reality of a divine power who is at play in this world, uh, within whom there is no chaos, there is only clarity. And this clarity does not sit above the mess, uh, it's a thread that runs through the mess. This is a message for you if things are not going as you expected. Uh, it's a message for you if you have just a sense of life's chaos or uncertainty or messiness. Um, at the end of this prophecy, you may not have direct answers to the specific situations you are in, but you will be given a vantage point from which to make the next decision, from which to take a step forward. Um, and so today, I'd love us to do three things which 
Step one, give us a broad shape and meaning to these 14 chapters of Zechariah. Um, Step two, for us to get a sense of how they come alive within the whole biblical narrative. And step three, then reflect on what a difference um, this perspective could give for you and for I uh, today as we navigate our own sometimes good, sometimes chaotic, often messy lives that we have. So I'm going to pray and ask God just to be present with us as we read and reflect on his word. Let's pray. Our dear Lord and loving Heavenly Father, Lord, bring these words alive for us through the power of your living spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So step one, let's try and understand this book, Zechariah. Uh, It's got three broad sections. It's got an introduction, it's got a whole set of visions, and then it's got some poetry. And in fact, we had one Bible reading tonight from each of those sections. Um, The introduction is simple enough. Zechariah opens with an invitation for the nation of Judah, to whom he is speaking to, to reload and return. His message is, you've been in exile for 40 years, Uh, you're now finally home, this is time for a fresh start. Uh, That is, don't be like your ancestors. Instead, return to the Lord, verse 3, and turn from your evil ways, verse 4. It seems that God gifts us with these moments. Uh, often chaotic or uncertain, but they are moments where we have the opportunity to reload and start afresh. Uh, They are moments of great potential. If we can see them as a chance to refresh our sense of what is true and real and important in life and to allow God's word to guide us. This is the opening to Zechariah's prophecy. And already this may be a word that you need to hear right now, this day. You might be in a season of reloading and refreshing, and Zechariah says, if that is you, that's great. But allow God's word, his good word, to guide you in this season. Well, Zechariah then moves into eight visions Eight visions that are pretty bizarre. Um, But to be honest, I don't know if you've ever had a dream and it's been normal. Most of the dreams I have are weird and wacky and I have a different body and then I move into a different place and so that's pretty normal. And that's kind of like the visions that Zechariah has in this prophecy. Yet bizarre as they are, these visions gave meaning to current events that were happening and a glimpse to the future. Now, if you're going to read this prophecy through during the week, you'll read the introduction and it will make sense. And then you hit these visions and it's a classic barrier. But hopefully we can sort of get an understanding of them tonight so you can read them with some more confidence. Here's one way to read them. You can actually pair them up and move inwards with the eight visions. What I mean by this, visions one and eight go together. And then visions two and seven go together, and then visions three and six go together, 
which leaves you at the end with the central visions four and five. Uh, and they are the most important. So that's sort of how these visions work. So let's see if we can understand these visions. Visions one and eight involve horsemen riding out across the world to establish order. And the first vision seems to appear to be uh, order that comes under the Persian rule at the time, uh, which I guess is good on one level because order is good, but it wasn't great. And the eighth vision is about God's rule and order across the whole world, which brings ultimate peace. And the hearers are left asking, is now the time for God's good, ordered kingdom to come? Visions 1 and 8. Then you have visions 2 and 7. And these actually are about Israel's past sin that led them into exile. And so vision 2 describes four horns, and that is just symbols for power, that defeated Israel and Judah. And then vision seven is this wacky vision of an evil woman in a basket with a lead lid being carried off to Babylon by two angelic figures. Uh, But that actually symbolizes Judah's own experience of going into exile in Babylon. And the hearers are left with the sense that it is our rejection of God and his word that's probably at the center of our problems. Then you've got vision three and six. And these visions are actually about a new Jerusalem, a city that flourishes and is a blessing. The third vision is of someone being asked to measure out current day Jerusalem uh, because it's going to be a great city for God's glory. And then the sixth vision is this weird flying scroll that goes around wrapping up all the liars and thieves and deceivers. And it ensures that this future city is going to be a place of rest and peace and joy. And so the listeners are left with a sense that whatever future God has planned, it's going to be incredibly good and it's going to be worth being a part of. Now we reach the central visions, four and five. And these focus on the king, Zerubbabel, and the high priest, Joshua. The fourth vision was our Bible reading this evening, has the high priest wearing the sins of his people in the form of a dirty robe. But that is taken off and he robes up in a clean, restored garment. And we're told that this represents a plan that God has to remove the sins of his people in a single day through a future high priest like Joshua. And then the fifth vision involves two olive trees Uh, representing the king and high priest of Judah, who are overseeing the rebuilding of the temple. And these two olive trees provide oil for a golden lamp that itself represents God's presence and rule over his people. And the point of this vision is that God's temple will only come about through a dependence on God's work amongst his people, not through our own ambition. And these are the visions of Zechariah. Now, as I said, these can be a real barrier as you start reading this text. But in a 30-second summary of them, we actually have this message from the prophet. Is it time for God to bring his rule into our world? We have sinned and experienced the consequences of ignoring God. 
But God has plans for a future kingdom that will be better than anything we can imagine. And at the center of this, the means through which this will happen is the combination of a king and priest who will be God's presence and rule, dealing with our sin and bringing a new temple to completion. There's one other thing in these visions. What is required on the part of the people? Total faithfulness to God's word. Now, are you sensing any connection here with any parts of our Bible, any other parts? You might be picking up some familiar terminology. And if you are, then you've got to check out how this prophecy ends. Because that's our third section. We've moved from the visions now, and Zechariah writes poetry, chapters 11 to 14. And here, at the end of his prophecy, there is a poetic vision that the kingly priest who God will use to do something in this world will, chapter 9, come to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The next poetic image is of this humble king, of this humble king involves him as a shepherd leading and calling people back to God. But we're warned in chapter 11 that this one true shepherd is going to be rejected by the other shepherds or leaders and the flock. But for those who follow the shepherd, Zechariah says in chapter 12, 10, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the only one they have pierced, And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And then the final image is of a new city. God is present with his people. And the one who is behind this world makes all things beautifully new. And that ends this intense and powerful prophecy of Zechariah. feels like something from Zechariah. It's happening right now amongst us. Fantastic. Oh, this is a love boat theme. Uh, Reflecting on Zechariah, there's a lot there, isn't there? And if you sit down and read it this week, you'll find even more. Uh, And so we've added into your, on the cover of your zines, a diagram that actually charts this prophecy in graphic form. If you're a visual learner, a visual follower, this would be fantastic. Uh, It's designed by our good friends at the Bible Project, and uh, my community group often watch their videos in looking at different books of the Bible or themes. Uh, We contacted them this week, and we asked the guys, can we print this on our zines? And they said, yes. So uh, there it is for you. That could be a good guide as you read through Zechariah yourself. Uh, Yet as busy and wacky and interesting as this Old Testament book may be, it really comes alive in step two. When we, place, when we place it within the broader biblical narrative. Now, it's fair to say that there are many different views of what the Bible actually is. Um, I know you hear a lot here at, in Church Hill that we believe the Bible is, in fact, God's living word. But there's so many other views. Uh, some regard it as a simplistic book of rules. Others, some ancient ramblings about right and wrong. 
Uh, Still others, more skeptical, a text put together in the Middle Ages to give authority to a corrupt church's bid to power. There are lots of different views on what the Bible actually is. And I hazard a guess that for a lot of people in Sydney, they may well hold the view of kind of, I don't really know and I don't really care. And I get that because the Bible can seem like a thing of the past. Until you start to actually read it as an adult in the present. And what you find is that the Bible is a richly complex collection of writings which claim to give testimony to the hand of God at work in this world. And the more you read it, the more you find it's actually one coherent narrative stretched across 66 books and hundreds of years. The prophecy of Zechariah by itself, in isolation, is simply an ancient source from around 500 BC encouraging a defeated Middle Eastern people to have hope and rebuild their city. As a historian, that in itself is pretty intriguing. But it's hardly newsworthy today. But that's exactly why this text cannot be read in isolation. For the central testimony of the the Bible is that this prophecy from Zechariah we have read has come true. It's come true through the historical figure, Jesus Christ, and that he continues to work, to be at work today Uh, in Sydney, in Cape Town, in Beijing, in New York, in Edinburgh, in all places. God continues to be at work in this world through the work of his spirit-filled people, through our link missionaries, the Goscombs who are in Western Australia. He continues to be at work through the Snowdens as they do their work in Valencia, Spain. He continues to be at work through Erin Moorcroft as she does her work over in Ireland sharing about the good news of Jesus. Continues to be at work here in Sydney through you. Look at our second Bible reading for today. Read it in the light of Zechariah's prophecy. This was written 600 years later, the book of Hebrews. Hear these words. The writer says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Pause. The claim here is that God has kept his promise and sent the one that Zechariah spoke of. We know him as Jesus, the Son of God. Let's keep reading. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, Yet he did not sin. See, here's the problem with Zechariah's vision and his poetry, as fantastical as it is. God's plans were only ever going to come about if the people were totally faithful to him. And that's a massive problem. Because if God doing something great in this world 
is wholly dependent on my faithfulness, then we are in a lot of trouble. And I'd hazard a guess that the Goscombs, the Snowdens, Aaron would all say the same thing. Perhaps you would too. But this is where we see the depth and the grandeur of the biblical narrative. Because in Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, we don't just have the fulfillment of kingship and priesthood and temple like we looked at last week, the fulfillment of sacrifice that the Old Testament speaks of. In Jesus, we have the one faithful Israelite who was tempted in every way, just as you and I are, yet he did not sin. Jesus, you could argue, is presented in the Bible, this sounds weird, but kind of as the truest human, the most human you can be. That is, in loving obedience to his Father God and loving and serving those around him. And to be a Christian is to put our trust in his faithfulness and then start following him. It's almost like Jesus is saying, come and follow me and and I'll pull you up into your truest humanity through the work of my spirit in your life. And so my faith is placed in what Jesus has achieved for me. And my experience today is the change that his spirit is bringing about in me through my understanding and obeying of his word in little daily things, like how I respond when I'm frustrated, the words I speak into other people's lives, the habits I have in my daily routines, the way I try and capture my thoughts and align my thinking to that which is good. I take it that's why the writer of Hebrews finishes with these words. He says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Confident in myself? No, that's the point. Confident in Jesus. So that we may receive mercy and we find grace to help us in our time of need. You know, the Bible is not a kid's book, although kids can and do grasp its central message. The Bible is not merely a book of morals, although it does give a framework of what is good and right and what is evil or wrong. The Bible is a complex narrative for a complex world about a God who is bigger than all of us, bringing about his plans for a new creation both in each one of our lives now and of this actual created world in the future. I said at the start that today we have a message for you if things are not going as you expected. At the end of this prophecy, you may not have direct answers to all the specific situations that you're in, but you may have a vantage point from which to make the next decision. 
in almost every circumstance, if you don't have some sense of the future, it can be very difficult to make clear decisions in the present. And I know many of us have experienced that when we've had uncertain futures on the horizon. Jesus gives us a clear sense of the future. His future for you is to grow more into his likeness. It's less about where you are and it's more about who you are. His spirit at work to grow you up in love and joy, peace, in patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. This is his plan for you, the fruit of Jesus' spirit in your life. Long term, Jesus has promised he will return to make all things new. And he asks you and I, he asks us actually as a community, to be his temple or his presence in the place he has you right now, as well as the place you'll go tomorrow. This is the thread that we allow to weave and lead us in an uncertain future. Does this tell me what to do with that decision at work? No. Does this tell me what choice I should make with my finances? No. But it gives us a vantage point of those things that really matter to who we are as human people from which to make sense of our lives and our future and then give shape for wise decisions in the coming day and the coming weeks and the coming months. I'm not sure where each one of us are at this afternoon, this evening. Um, You may be in a really, really good season and uh, you are thankful to God for that. You may be in a really chaotic and messy season and you are uncertain about the future. But Zechariah speaks into the chaos. He does not ask you to look out of the mess to find God, but rather to see God being present in the mess, to see his promise to you in his word of what he is doing in your heart and your life for you as a person, to see the future he has planned for you, and then to step out each day and each moment guided by him. Uh, In a moment, we're going to sing... really, I guess, a prayer to God. And it is a prayer that Zechariah leads us to, uh, that as messy as we are, we can come before a holy and mighty God because of the clarity and the faithfulness of Jesus. It's so good. And I encourage you as uh, we sing this next song together uh, that you let it lead your heart to a place of thankfulness and perhaps a place of clarity. Um, I'm going to pray for us and uh, then we're going to sing. Our dear Lord and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you 
for your son Jesus and for the spirit that he gives to those who put their faith and trust in him. And Lord, I pray that you may guide our steps, that we may stay in step with your spirit. Lord, I thank you that you give us autonomy over choices that we make in life and the directions that we go. But Lord, I pray that we may have a real sense of the, of the man, of the woman that you are growing us up to be as a child of you. That we may look for your hand at work in our lives as we become more like Christ. And Lord, whatever it means for us, give us a vision of what you are doing and will do in the future. And please, just let it guide our thoughts and decisions and actions this afternoon and this week. And uh, we pray these things in the name of Jesus himself. Amen.